Oh, no, I don't actually know how to use Twitter. I just heard a young pe- person say it once, and I was like, that sounds cool. Subtweeting? Yeah. yeah. That's a cool thing that cool people do. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. All yeah. the cool kids being cool. I didn't know it had a name until I did it. And then <laughs> later I read about it, and I was like, oh. So when somebody sends you a real annoying DM, and instead of responding to them, you tweet about it? Yeah, lots of people do that. They have a whole name for it. <laughs> or when you just don't mention the person that you're talking to, but it's fairly obvious who it's about. Right. Yeah. That's the why I always forget that direct messages actually even exist. And that's how old I am is that I call them direct messages, not DMs. I only call it DMs because I listen to enough cool music with the cool kids that they say all up in my DMs. Mm. And is that good? Depends. Um, there, you know, usually it seems to be in reference to a man getting lost in their DMs, and then telling their the man's girl that she should go fetch him. So I, I, uh, I guess it depends on the perspective of the person. So is this like when a guy tries to go find eggs in the grocery store and comes back with four gallons of ice cream? No, that's Wednesday. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I am feeling especially old. Um, it's not just because I got up way too early and taught all day. It's because, Chris, I watched the VMAs and the VMA <sighs> pre-show. What is wrong with you? Why would you? You're it's, supposed to love yourself. It's a tradition. And like many traditions, it's not a good one. I was going to say, do all your doing... <laughs> traditions involve self-sacrifice? I mean, yeah, when I think about most of the major holidays, the answer is generally yes. <laughs> but I have been pretty consistently watching the VMAs since I was a child. And progressively getting more out of touch, I think. But at the same time, so is MTV. <laughs> And this is the first, I won't say it's the first year that it smacked of, hey, kids, what's happening these days? Whoa, how about those Twitters? Hello, Uh, fellow young people. Yes, precisely. The meme, the Buscemi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not the first time it's felt like that. But this year in particular, it really felt like that. And um, they gave the... The Video Vanguard Award away to Nicki Minaj, who like got up on stage and showed the young people how it's done. So good on you, Nicki. And then they gave Global Ambassador or something award, some shit they made up, uh, to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And the Red Oh, Hot the Please Ch- Attend Award. Yes. And they were there and they performed, and they could not have had less energy if someone had doped them up with like sleeping pills ahead of time. Right. I'm like, you're the red hot chili peppers. Like, what I remember of you is jumping up and down, mostly naked, covered in silver paint. And you're like, you got a bad mustache and a terrible haircut, and you clearly don't care about being here. Would you go so far as to say that they gave it away now? I walked right into that, didn't I? Yeah, you sure did. Like, stomping through the hallways. (laughs) 
Uh, I guess I'll go sit under the bridge downtown and think about what I did. Anyway, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. My ambulatory appendages cease to function efficiently after extended use, just like yours. Oof, my, um, knees? They are certainly squeaking. Time to put some animal-themed slipcovers on my metatarsals and relax, am I right? <laughs> With me is Chris, who is also here. I figured out a new Turing test. Describe cilantro. <laughs> that is a very divisive uh, selection of herbs. It's true. Like, some people really like cilantro, and other people think it tastes like dirt. Right. Some people like cilantro, and some people are wrong. Well, that's not how I thought that was going to go. I think I think you and I just enjoy the taste of dirt, and we didn't realize it. <laughs> it tastes appropriate. I have definitely come across people in, you know, my cooking that have expressed a distaste for cilantro, and I have opted not to put it in their meal. So I'm well, sure I think there's actually a genetic component to that too, there right? Is. Like if you're missing something, some gene doesn't get activated and you literally taste dirt. Yes. It's, like it's not, not subjective opinion. It literally tastes gross. Yes. Right. But they're still wusses and I hate them. I agree. <laughs> oh, interestingly, the berries of the cilantro is coriander. And I'm wondering if people have the same feeling about coriander that they do about cilantro with the dirt thing. I'm going to stop you right there. And first of all, I did not know that cilantro had berries. Mm -hmm. And wasn't Oleander a movie with Angelina Jolie? Uh, that's that's white Oleander. I'm talking about the brown kind. Oh. Of course. Silly. Oh. Silly, Chris. <laughs> well, that's probably enough about spices. Do you want to talk about some tech garbage? Let's just. Are we going to keep boy, it spicy? <laughs> and boy, well, it's definitely garbage this week of a number of varieties. So, what I wanted to do was do a little bit of a deep dive into the story of a man called Mudge. Yes, that's what he's called. And he has had some pretty intense things to say about Twitter the past couple of weeks in public to the FTC, SEC, uh, the ACC, I think, got an email. The NFL, for some reason, was notified. It was a big deal. <laughs> Is this like a man called Ove or Uve situation? Maybe not. I don't know. I'm just uh, I'm too tired to make a, a clever uh, dog pile, so I'm just going to power on through. Okay, you do that. That That's the best <laughs> choice you could make. <laughs> so let's talk about the man. The man is named Peter Zatko. Not much. Well, we're getting there. Okay, okay. And he was a big muckety-muck head of security guy for Twitter for a few years. But before that, he was a general world-class security technologist, hacker, public speaker, raconteur, you name it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he made his bones in technology in the 90s, 2000s. So, of course, he can't just be Peter. No. He has to have a cool hacker name. So much. Sure. I've heard worse. I, I yes, a crash override, you know, obviously, <laughs> or acid burn, definitely. Um, anyway, he was hired by Twitter specifically by name by Jack Dorsey 
in a very public fashion in November of 2020 to be their, quote, security lead. As to me, feels like a weird title for a C-level executive, but that's what they called him. Not CISO? Or... No, sir. Oh. Security lead. Weird. Okay. This might be one of those things where, you know, I mean, come on, we're talking about Dorsey, so anything's possible. It could <laughs> be one of those things where they were like, you can create your own title. I'm the emperor of butterflies. <laughs> sir, you work for quality control. <laughs> anyway, he had that job from November of 2020 until January of this year when he was fired. Ooh. He's been stewing about it for a while and apparently talking to lots of lawyers this past week. He dropped some bombshells in a whistleblower document and a companion interview with Time magazine. Ooh. Now, the document is available in a very redacted way, um, which we will link to in the show notes. Brace yourself. It's 84 pages. Uh, the Time magazine interview, not much shorter. Wow. So I'm doing a lot of condensing here. <laughs> Thank you. And we all appreciate your service. Uh, but what I want to do is talk about the situation in two parts. The why I believe that he's doing this, and I'm putting I believe in big, bold letters. Mm -hmm. I'm making assumptions about people I've never met nor heard of. Okay. But I do know a little bit about office politics. I know about security. I know about technology. And I know when it's time to make fun of Jack Dorsey. Always. Correct. Oh, you know, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But then I'm going to go into the technical complaints that he lays out, and we can talk about a couple of things about them in terms of what might have triggered the response that he gave. Okay. All right. So part one, the politics. Dun, dun, Probably dun, the boring dun. part for a lot of people. Um, you want to go ahead and skip ahead 15 minutes? You're not going to hurt my feelings. But I think to understand what happened and why, it's important to note all of the things that I've already alluded to. Mudge was hired in a high-profile move after Twitter experienced a very embarrassing and very public hack of their systems. Mm -hmm. I remember that. That sounds Think familiar. about the, the stage that is being set. High-profile guy in a high-profile situation, directly hired by the CEO, Jack Dorsey, who was probably high. Valid. Now... This is also the time that Dorsey was actively spending less and less time with Twitter, eventually stepping down completely in November of 2021. Mm -hmm. Then, not three months later, Mudge was also out. Hmm. Now, why do I mention all of this stuff? I mention it because a lot of the complaint, that 84 pages of joy and flowers, comes <laughs> off as personal. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a shocking thing to a lot of the tech community because Mudge has always been known as an intense guy, but a careful tactician and a serious mind who isn't known to make wild moves or act unprofessionally. Yet, very quickly after this came out, the situation devolved into Mudge and Twitter respectively calling each other filthy liars. Mm. And that's borderline an exact quote. Also, the timing of the disclosure seems quite Odd. He was fired in January. Uh-huh. It's now August. That that some time has passed. And he's blowing the whistle now when Twitter's already a little down and out because of our old pal Muskie, who is definitely lying about Twitter. 
And, a, and everything else, essentially. And totally coincidentally, does Mudge's complaint try to work in Elon's favor? It tries to. Mm. Clearly and unambiguously on pages 2 through 20. Okay. Um, the document describes a lot about what Twitter executives are incentivized to do. And he specifically brings in the bots, which okay. is curious to me because bot accounts on a social network are not something I would expect the head of security oh, – I'm sorry, the security lead <laughs> of Twitter to care about. IMHO, they're in the news, so now they're in the disclosure. Yeah, I mean, could bot accounts be used to somehow hack Twitter or expose security flaws in the Twitter UI or something along those lines. Like you could see an automated account being used to do some level of probing into security, the security around the Twitter API. That's a possibility. I will grant you that. And I will caveat a couple of things here with my usual statement that I am not a capital P programmer. In my mind, there would be a massive, massive wall between what the standard users, the people that sign up for Twitter can do, mm -hmm. and people with Twitter.com as their email addresses can do. <laughs> One would hope. Yeah. And just put a pin in that until we get to part two. Okay. Um, <laughs> Twitter says that they fired him for poor leadership and poor performance. A lot of the complaint reads more like, the executives didn't do everything I wanted exactly how I wanted. One section has him griping about a board member, basically telling him to pipe down and stop trying to talk to the board directly. Hmm. Now, that's not super unreasonable. He was not on the board. He has a chain of command. Right. So he doesn't get to make recommendations directly to the board. And he shouldn't complain to them if he has a fight with the CEO and the CEO doesn't agree with him instantly. I mean, pointing out that Jack Dorsey was not particularly present. So sometimes it may have seemed like his only recourse would right. have been to appeal to the board. I get that, too. Um, and while Mudge will not actually comment on why he was fired, like specifically say they fired me because... Uh, what he's basically saying is it wasn't for poor leadership and poor performance. Look at this 84-page document. Mm. And I suspect he's not saying something directly because his lawyers advised him against it. But what it seems like to me is this was not a good situation, and he was not a good fit for the role. He mm -hmm. had previous other jobs at big companies. He has Google on his resume, for example. But it doesn't seem to me like he's a good wartime corpo background guy. Mm. where Twitter in this situation is in a challenge and they've got to move in 19 different directions at the same time. Uh, maybe he just couldn't deal with those types of people appropriately. That doesn't mean he's a failure or he's a bad person. It just means it wasn't a fit. Mm -hmm. That certainly um, happened. You and I have worked with people who are not bad people, not even necessarily bad at the technology portion of their job, but, you know, they went into a consulting role and consulting was not a good fit for them. Right. And either they left or were let go pretty unceremoniously. And it's not that they were bad. It's just that consulting was not for them. So maybe, like you said, this just wasn't a good fit for him. And there's a way to do that, deal with that amicably. And there's a way to deal with that uh, 
very loudly. <laughs> on the cover of Time magazine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's an important thing to remember. It's it A lot of this stuff is about personal relationships. Getting things done requires a lot of people to agree. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, I believe that he's not wrong. Sometimes just being right is not enough. Often, as you and I have both, both experienced, especially dealing with clients, just because you're right doesn't mean shit. Right. So I think that's what feeds a lot of this is bad blood, specifically between Mudge and the new CEO, who is the one that fired him because Dorsey didn't even have the stones to do that on his way out. Mm-hmm. So the other thing about this and that makes me feel like it's personal the document is clearly read the 84 page disclosure document is clearly read or written to be read by people who skim things Mm. the language is not professional there's random stuff like words and phrases just bolded in the middle of a paragraph i think it was written with the expectation nay intention that it was going to be released by somebody by leaked somewhere and They wanted to make sure people control F and find the juicy bits. Mm -hmm. So I just want to give you an exact quote. This is word for word from how the document describes Mudge working with Parag Agrawal after Dorsey left as CEO. Quote, before Agrawal was appointed CEO on November 29, 2021, he had served over four years as Twitter's chief technology officer. Agarwal's hiring as CEO had been contentious with some board directors opposed. Our client reasonably believes that Agarwal became defensive about many of the problems that our client identified because Agarwal had caused them or allowed them to fester in his role as CTO. Mm. That's a bold, grammatically questionable statement right there. (laughs) He uses the word fester. That's some some editorial content commentary in there right dramatic a little bit right also things like our client reasonably believes some directors oppose there's a lot of insinuation yeah Yeah, there's a lot of insinuation without providing any evidence which is why in in some places the document reads like 84 pages of character assassination it reads like a medium post (laughs) this was intended for the court of public opinion right okay so okay That's the background, the politics, the people involved. Um, I just wanted to get out there because I'm always curious about motivation. Why do people do what they do and when Mm. they do it? Qui bono, as the kids say. Sonny Bono? No one talks about him (laughs) No, that's his brother. You know, I was thinking about how we we, we speak as if it's weird that uh, we have elected celebrities to major offices. And then I remember that we elected Sonny Bono as a senator. And that happened, too. Yeah. yeah it's not like <laughs> this is brand new. <laughs> but let's uh, uh, that aside, let's get into the actual technical complaints that Mudge is, is alluding to in his document or is outright right. stating. And as we go through this, I want you to think about these um, points that he raises in two different ways. One is in the situation that he's already in, kind of the Twitter verse. Wait, that sounds weird because there's actually a Twitter verse, the Twitter IT world, but also just IT worlds that we've seen in general. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about is going to sound real familiar. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay. 
The first thing I am going to do is skip all the crap about MDAOs and bots because I just, just can't. <laughs> okay, don't care. It's, it's it's the first 20 pages of the doc, though, so knock yourself out if you want to. But um, on the bright side, it's going to save us a lot of time to skip it. Okay, skipped. Now, the document roughly categorizes some things into some sections. So I'm going to go through them in the order that they are listed, more or less. Mm -hmm. Some specific ones that IT folks are going to hear a lot about and ringing some bells in their heads. Point. Live production access is widespread and user activity is not effectively logged. Yeah. Point. There is no comprehensive RBAC policy or process. Uh -huh. Point. The testing and production environments are not separate. Mm -hmm. So not a great start. This is like baseline IT hygiene that we're not um, brushing. <laughs> yeah. Also, none of this is surprising. Right. Now, it is, however, concerning because Twitter is a growing company even now. Um, at this time, the document says Twitter has approximately 10,000 active employee slash users. So I assume there's more use, uh, employees, but maybe they just don't have access. But anyway, the document alleges that roughly half of them have access to production. That's a very broad statement and doesn't really define what access to production means. Right. He leans in on the testing versus production stuff, mm -hmm. basically saying people do stuff in live in the production environment to see if it works. They do A-B testing without the B, um, which is a pretty standard infrastructure problem, but it's also a security problem. In my mind, at least, the easy one is A, as in this famous CIA triad, is accessibility. Mm -hmm. So you've got to figure out, first of all, if you screw up something in a testing environment and the whole environment blows up, well, okay, poop. Yep. Technical IT term. But if you screw something up in testing and production blows up and now you have no access to production, that's a problem. That's a big problem. That's like three poop emojis in a row. <laughs> right. At least. So it's not a good infrastructure design, um, but it's a common one. And design doesn't really necessarily always mean I sat down with graph paper and organized precisely how everything was going to go, including where every single outlet would be. Design often just means stuff ended up that way after inevitable staff turnover, constant insistent demands to increase production, introduce new features, and unintentional introduction of dependency loops. And God help you if something goes down ever. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to another point that the document states, which is there is no document that describes how to cold boot Twitter. So, okay. What that basically means is the infrastructure at this point has to stay up because if something crazy happens and all the systems go down, they don't know how to get it all back up. You bring up DNS first. <laughs> DNS probably caused the problem in the first place. Let's be real. Okay, also true. <laughs> now, a lot of people kind of blew up about this, but it might sound a little familiar because not that long ago, Google admitted that they had that problem too. When an infrastructure grows organically and out of control, you don't know what your stuff is doing. 
I have to say, I have been using Twitter long enough to remember the days of the fail whale. Right. And that was essentially when too many users were actively using Twitter at the same time, or they pushed out an update to production that caused the whole site to just stop responding for a while. And you would get the 404 page or the 500 page, which would be a whale. Right. And it would say, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> and it was called the fail whale. And it was common enough that it got a nickname. And at a certain point, they stabilized their systems enough that I have not seen the fail whale in a decade, probably. So right. bearing that in mind, like, it is working. How effectively I mean, it's working is another question. <laughs> right. And I think that that's exactly where some of the disconnect comes in. By working, it could be like... You know, the bad guy in a mobster movie who's been shot 12 times and is still lurching towards the door, dragging a shotgun, which is very different than James Bond coolly parking his Aston Martin, walking out, opening the door for his passenger, of course, because he's a gentleman. And then walking easily into the front door of wherever someone innocent was probably going to die. Right. Yeah, when right. you say production is working and you make it a binary yes, no situation. Bad infrastructure becomes very easy to tolerate. I think it's really hard to align incentives in such a way that you properly implement security and you make the changes necessary to have stable infrastructure over the long haul. Right. Because that's never where the incentives are. The incentives are, like you said, they're new features. They're supporting good ads or ads, at least. It's providing tracking data to those same self-same advertisers who are demanding it from you. Like, that's where the incentives are. Applying additional security, that gets in the way of providing all this tracking data to the advertisers who are paying us money. Right. And it's annoying, right? The other thing is the seesaw between security and convenience. That sounds familiar. Have we been here before? <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like, they don't want to think about it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's how these kinds of things can just happen over time. Like, the other, the next two bullet points that were listed in the document. Point. Software used in the data center was not properly licensed. <laughs> Point. Hardware and software systems in the data center were no longer supported by vendors. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this supposed to be surprising to anyone <laughs> ever? <laughs> I hope not, because this is every data center of every company that has more than one employee. And even then, it's a not a guarantee. Why do you have a Gateway 2000 PC in Iraq over here? Oh, that's our DNS server. Don't touch it. The cow is our friend. <laughs> so he states, quote, over 50% of Twitter's 500,000 data center servers with non-compliant kernels or operating systems many unable to support encryption at rest. Well, that's why they always keep it moving. That's true. Yeah, why, we just never turn it off. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. It's all fine. Again, like, this is not all that surprising, right? Right. The big surprise to me was 500,000 servers. That's like a lot of servers. It feels like a lot of servers. Like, I know Twitter's a huge global phenomenon, but really... It's kind of lightweight. It's 
doesn't handle graphics. It doesn't do processing. I don't imagine they need a huge amount of CPU. Don't they have like, you know, microservices now? You're all about containers. Well, I mean, those still need to run on something. 500,000 servers? Apparently, the answer is yes. Now, of course, if some of the things that you're saying are correct, a lot of those servers are not running at peak capacity and in the most efficient manner, and you're, they're not making the best use of the bare metal that they could. But again, right. are they incentivized to do so? Yeah, and then that's another possibility when it comes to an alarming but all too common security concern, which is how many of those 500,000 servers are just sitting there doing nothing because they were not properly decommissioned. People don't even know that they're there because right. that happens too. So just to provide some context on this, because I looked it up real quick. If you look at how many physical servers Microsoft claims to have at the as of early 2021, it was over 4 million physical servers to support Azure. Right, so, because Microsoft is really inefficient. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously that too. <laughs> um, but I just I thought it, that's an interesting number to put things in perspective, that Twitter has 500,000 servers to support Twitter. Right. And Microsoft is supporting Azure, which is ostensibly a bigger deal that makes a hell of a lot more money. And they're doing it Zing. with 4 million servers, which is not that many more. So no. you can clearly say that that 500,000 servers is way too many physical servers to run Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the next section, which is around end user management and security. Okay. And there's a couple here. First one. Endpoint management software have been installed on 92% of laptops, which is good. Not bad. But security updates had been disabled on over 30% of those devices, mm. which is bad. Yeah, bad. Endpoint management software did not actually white or blacklist software installs. Mm. There was no mobile device management whatsoever. <laughs> wow. Endpoint devices were not backed up at all. And there was no policy defining where or how sensitive company data should be stored. One of those is a real problem. <laughs> Mudge talks a little bit about some executives making jokes about the endpoint device backup program and saying, well, if there's no backups, then we can't get sued because there's no data. <laughs> there's no discovery. <laughs> well, for some people, that is actually the strategy. If we totally. had a proper solution in place that did back up all of the endpoint devices that we have, then we would be liable for the data that's backed up on all of the endpoint devices we have. So better just to not back it up. <laughs> well, I mean, best would be to lock the laptops down to the nth degree, keep all of that sensitive information within the company's walls, and then not back it up. But at least it's all in one place. You have to imagine to a certain degree, as Twitter evolved as a company, they weren't really the type of corporation that was into the whole like controlling everybody's device man sort of scenario. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, um, you know, he talks in the document about how the backup program eventually got completely shelved instead of fixed, mm. um, that employees would have third party software installed. Um, 
to quote sometimes to quote help them with their jobs, but other times it ended up being malware that was only discovered <laughs> accidentally. Um, and this is a problem too. If you're just checking a box, you have a solution that is installed but not monitored mm -hmm. and not powerful can be worse than a system that's not installed at all. Right. You know? There was an endpoint strategy, right? But this goes back to those binary checkpoints that we were talking about. Endpoint strategy, yes. But it's a terrible endpoint strategy. But we sorry, have sorry, one. I couldn't hear you over me saying yes. <laughs> uh, as someone who used to do um, or had to do PCI DSS compliance for an organization at one point, I can tell you, you can check all the tech bo text boxes that are in PCI DSS and still be horribly insecure. Right. Because the devil's in the details. Yeah, or you could just lie. I mean, that's always an option, too. <laughs> There's a lot of alleging in here, and this is why he actually <laughs> sent it to the SEC and the FTCs. He's alleging that they straight up lied and broke the law, which mm. I'm going to avoid that part, too, because I'm not a lawyer. But around the checkbox type of thing, he discusses a similar situa situation on the dev side where they wanted to develop an SDLC, a real software development lifecycle. Mm -hmm. The buzzword got thrown around, but implementation at the lower levels where it really mattered was not taken seriously. This is indicative of a chaotic development environment, kind of like, hey, man, we're just inventing the future, okay? <laughs> but... What he describes is an environment where development is not standardized. Mm. It's done on devices that are ineffectively secured, not audited. Half the staff can access the production environment. Production is not reliably up to date. And if there's a catastrophic event, you might not even be able to turn the product back on. So you can, you can see why he might be uh, alarmed, especially if he thought that Twitter execs were not incentivized to care about it. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> You know, honestly, though, if Twitter somehow the entire service crashed and they weren't able to bring it back up, would that really be a bad thing? Seriously. <laughs> I'm going to tweet about this. <laughs> now, it'll be interesting to see what comes from all of this. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed my tone is going all over the place. In reading the complaint, I kept pinballing back and forth between like this name calling, this whole thing is kind of ridiculous. And, well, actually, how many times have we seen obvious IT concerns backburnered by executives before? Oh, boy, yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing we don't have is hard, irrefutable evidence that the executives were intentionally misleading regulators or the board. And like I said, to be fair, there's a lot that's redacted in the doc, which is why I'm not really leaning on it too hard. But these security issues and this pattern of not caring about security has a serious ring of plausibility to it. Yeah, I'm certain that a lot of what he is citing is technically accurate, even if he's putting it in terms that are a little hyperbolic. So it might not be as much of a dumpster fire as he's indicating. But I also suspect, suspect, like, to go back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about that it just wasn't a good fit. Right. And I don't know Mudge's background, the other organizations he's used to working with, but if I could make a guess, I would guess that he's worked with governmental organizations 
or serious enterprises that have their big boy pants on with the suspenders. And those are the types that are likely to have a well-defined process for all this, to do things by the book, to follow the rules and not have this sort of cowboy attitude when it comes to how they treat production and how they treat security. And then he went to Twitter and his head fucking exploded. Right. Yeah, that feels that feels right. And I also wonder if since his head was exploding and he was just everywhere he looked, looked was on fire. Could it have been a situation where he was every other day? Hey, we have to fix this. Hey, we have to fix that. Hey, we have to fix that. And just couldn't focus. Right. Because that's another thing when you work with a company, even executives who work two hours a day get tired. <laughs> Burn. Yes. <laughs> You know, it's very easy to accidentally become, you know, the security lead that cried wolf. If you just every day is another disaster and everybody upstairs is looking around and being like, we haven't had a problem for a year and a half. Settle down. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, but everything is on fire. They, yeah. But this is like a Centralia kind of situation where it is all on fire underneath. But right. we've got 20 years. Right. <laughs> Oh, that is such a great metaphor. I love it. <laughs> we'll move for away. Our, <laughs> for our non-Central Pennsylvania readers, Centralia is a very silly town that is situated directly above, I believe, a coal mine. A coal mine that is on fire. On fire. <laughs> and has been for 20 years. And it eventually has become completely unlivable. But the majority of people stayed well past when they should have. And you, I mean, if someday I want like a psychologist to do like just a deep dive on the human condition centered around that town, because there were people living there until like two years ago. Oh, they did a whole documentary. It's called Nothing But Trouble. Oh, no kidding. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> You've never seen that movie, have you? Oh, my is, God. I know oh, wait, what we're is doing the, tonight. <laughs> is that the one um, with the Ghostbuster? Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Yes. Hey, yes. Judge! <laughs> They're all horribly inbred, and yep. I'm pretty sure they yep. live on a town that is on top of a coal mine that's on fire. So I think <laughs> it was loosely based on Centralia, uh, which is, you know, not kind. <laughs> but fair? I don't know. <laughs> wow, we got way off track. But yeah, that that's the metaphor I would go with. There's a lot of these organizations, a lot of these companies that were built up during the second dot-com dot com boom, the web 2.0 boom, have a culture that doesn't necessarily adhere to what he grew up with in the 90s. And because of that, it he needed to take the approach of, we're going to deal with one crisis at a time, and I'm going to heavily focus on the thing that matters most and work on just that component until it's better. and right. I, Or until it's done. Right. And I suspect what you're saying is he was just losing his mind every day with all the things that were wrong and the fact that everybody else was walking around being like, well, it's just a little hot. It's fine. Yeah. I just, I, I just wear a mask because of the coal smoke. It's fine. It actually helps me keep the cigarette smoke in my mouth so I can rebreathe it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's lightning round. <laughs> All right. All right. 
Heroku. I'm rooting for you. You can do it. <laughs> I can do this. Heroku, free tier, no more. From the crypto ruins everything and this is why we can't have nice things departments, Paz originator Heroku has announced a public roadmap and the end of their more than generous free tier. Community reaction is mixed, with some shrugging their shoulders in ambivalence, others viciously attacking Salesforce.com, Heroku's parent company, for selling out to the man, and still others lamenting the change while being cognizant of the reasons behind it. So what are those reasons? Well, based on an excellent post by Christine Dodrill, a former employee of Heroku, the free tier was really the red-headed stepchild of the Heroku offerings. Some of it was hosted on legacy hardware that they really wanted to retire but couldn't unless they killed the apps running on it. And also, the free tier was constantly being abused by scammers and crypto miners, but I repeat myself, looking for some free hosting. You know, a free tier can be a community service to those who can't afford the full freight of the paid tiers. And it can also work to educate future technologists, possibly indoctrinating them all along the way with your preferred way of doing things, the Heroku way, perhaps. Christine, in particular, got their start in programming using the free tier from Heroku. So they lament that others may not have the same opportunity. Now, personally, I'd love to see a scholarship fund or free tier for students on all public cloud platforms, but it's very hard to verify identity and intent. Ultimately, Salesforce.com decided the cost of maintaining the free tier was higher than the benefit and has killed it. As usual, humans ruin everything. We suck. Speaking of sucking, Jack Dorsey regrets that Twitter became a company. Me too. Yeah, I was going to say, finally, he said something we can 100% get behind. Oh, wait. Oh, there was more to the topic? Wait, hold on a second. I'm just going to... Okay. I see. So I'll recap. Every once in a while, Dorsey gets the urge to blather on incoherently on the platform he helped create using short sentences and no critical thinking. Just like Twitter. <laughs> Oh, this one's already so fun. <laughs> Offering wisdom via banal proclamations void of anything that might be mistaken for supporting evidence. Just like Twitter. <laughs> Which, you know, good for us mere mortals. This time he has a lament from the podium. Twitter, he believes, should have been a protocol rather than a company. No. <laughs> In order to support his argument, he references Bitcoin. Ugh. Which is one, not really a protocol. Nope. Two, way too inefficient to handle a Twitter type scale anyway. And I didn't write a three. But then he moved on to talk about email. Because email is SMTP, which is dominated by a few major players. Completely blowing off how the implementation would matter. People don't use Gmail because they love SMTP. They don't they use even it know what it is. Google features. <laughs> right. And really, the only reason people use Twitter is because it was first and because everyone's already on it. It's the Kardashian of companies in the, are they in the Fortune 500? Probably. Probably. There are tons of disaggregated social networks that work on 
not a they work on a platform model, right? Sure. Mastodon. Nobody uses them because <laughs> there's nobody on them. The network effect and all that. Mm-hmm. Twitter is a product, plain and simple. It is not a protocol. It is weird to me that the guy that helped create Twitter doesn't want to see that. Mm. You get what you pay for is finally true, at least in the realm of publicly financed research projects from the U.S. government. Now, you would think, you would think that if research was publicly funded, then the public would have access to the results of the research. You would think. And until recently, you'd be wrong. For the longest time, the scientific papers that came out of publicly funded research have been placed behind subscription-based journals and paywalls, forcing a person to pay for the results of the research that they ostensibly paid for. Over the last 20 years, there has been a growing movement of researchers and activists to change this sordid state of affairs. During the Obama administration, a compromise was struck between the open publish activists and the paid scientific journals. Papers could live behind a paywall for the first year, but then the journals would be required to publish them in the open. Now, last week, the White House Office of Science and Technology said, hold my beer, and decreed that all scientific publications that receive federal funding must make their papers openly available at to the public at publication time. Naturally, the subscription journals are displeased with this turn of events. They might actually need to add some value to the equation. But the rest of us, we now have a new trove of amazing and interesting information that we can completely ignore while watching the latest TikTok dance. Me? I'm doing the Centralia hairspray challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new episode title. <laughs> Yet another AI-based image creator released. And this one is open source. Stable Diffusion, a name that itself seems like it was AI-generated, is now publicly available. The product is along the same lines as DALI 2, where it is trained on existing images and then directed based on prompts to create new ones. But... The product is designed to take additional steps forward for AI-assisted image generation. First of all, as I said before in a real high voice, it's open source. Hmm. Second, it's intended to be integrated into other tools. For example, a freely available Photoshop plugin already (laughs) exists, along with announcements from products I've never even heard of, like Figma and Lexica.art. Oh, and if you've got the horsepower... And you need a lot of horsepower, like nine gigs of video RAM horsepower, you can run SD on your own computer. Obviously, there's also an API. Access to the model is definitely a priority. But as we've seen from other AI and ML efforts, there are immediately concerns around security, aka deep fakes, or objectionable behavior, aka the internet. <laughs> SD is working with ethics and legal teams to attempt to get a handle on these. It is kind of wild to me how fast AI image generation is moving. And Stable intends to release similar products for video, audio, 
text-like language, and code. I'm sure it'll all be fine. All I know is that they is a whole like subsection of people that are calling themselves AI artists and or prompt engineers. And I just, my stomach is getting sick just thinking about it. I'm not even going to bring up FN Mecca, except to just say that that is the thing that exists and blew up this past week. Look it up if you don't know about it. Absolutists absolutely suck. <laughs> well, sit right down and I'll tell you the tale, the tale of a fateful site called Kiwi Farms. <sighs> Strapping everybody. In case you haven't been paying attention to Twitter or LinkedIn, you might have missed the brouhaha over the website Kiwi Farms and their repeated harassment of trans right activist Keffels. Kiwi Farms is a, quote, discussion board that is focused on the discussion of why trans people shouldn't exist and by extension are not people to be afforded anything approaching dignity or respect. They also hate women, Jewish people, and really anyone of color or a non-white background. You know, basic Nazi shit. They seem nice. <laughs> the website receives CDN and DDoS prevention services from Cloudflare which, without which, it would promptly be blasted into unusable oblivion. The thing about Cloudflare is their founder, Matthew Prince, is a free speech absolutist and has proudly proclaimed in the, in the past, quote, Cloudflare has never terminate a, terminated a customer or taken down content due to political pressure, end quote. Of course, that's not exactly true. Cloudflare terminated their relationship with white supremacist hate site, hate site The Daily Stormer after the murder of Heather Heyer during the Charlottesville rally of 2017. See, the thing about absolutist philosophies is that they absolutely do not work in the real world. The real world is messy, hostile, and full of gray areas. Now, one thing that is not a gray area is that Kiwi Farms is a trash fire full of hateful people, and giving those people a platform because of your weirdo libertarian beliefs makes you culpable for their actions. Here's hoping Cloudflare sees the light, or at least kowtows to pressure, from an increasing number of companies threatening to take their enterprise moneyball and go home. Google giveth and Google taketh away in Android user experience with updated advertising guidance for developers. Mm. Now, Google, as you may have heard, is a company that takes advertising pretty seriously. In light of that, they have rules for how advertising is handled in apps that run on Android and are served from the Play Store. A few of those policies are changing soon. First, the good. Starting September 30th, apps or games may not show advertisements in, quote, unexpected ways. Hmm. This includes ads going full screen unexpectedly. They say unexpectedly a lot. <laughs> ads that are not closable after 15 seconds or ads that interrupt gameplay. Hmm. Now, these are all fantastic. However they did make a concession back to advertisers, AKA themselves. Starting November 1st, 
applications that use the VPN service to filter out ads will be disallowed. Huh. This is allegedly for security, but they call out the ad protection specifically. So I guess it's security for the ads? <laughs> now, VPN-based protection is not just about avoiding ads. It can be used for lots of things. Avoiding tracker filtering and the like. So that's ad adjacent, and I'd wager that that's next on Google's hit list. You have options, though. You can always use a product like NextDNS, which runs a dyna dynamic DNS service and actively updates to block advertisers. Or you can install uBlock Origin on Firefox for Android. For now. So you should probably do that. <laughs> yeah, or both. <laughs> Why not? Next DNS is free for your first 150,000 DNS lookups per month. I'm not That's sure if I would stay in that range, but yeah, we'll go with that. Still pretty good. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. So go have a hopping hazy IPA and... Um, Maybe try to do the, what was it? The hairspray challenge in Centralia. I'm sure it'll go really well. <laughs> You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively. You can follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing if, that you're into. If you're looking for show notes, you can find those on chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which, you know, generally you shouldn't, but our show notes are awesome. So maybe you should. I don't know. Also, we have stickers. Stickers! If you like stickers and you want some stickers, uh, send me a Twitter DM or contact me through LinkedIn with an address, and I will send a couple stickers to that address. You're welcome. Also, I will be at HashiConf Global in October, so if you happen to be at that and find me, I will have stickers on me, and you can just ask for them. So either one works for me. Uh, that'll do it for us for this week. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta.